pray. Father, that's a profound song that we just lifted up to you. Talking about us not giving our souls to another. Something that we see in the Old Testament happen all the time as Israel time and time again lifted up her soul to false idols, to other nations, to anything but you. And Lord, so long comes the New Testament, the age of grace, and the first thing you did was bought us forgiveness through Jesus shed blood on the cross. But then through the resurrection, you've now given us power to be able to sing a song like that and truly not lift our, our souls to another. So that's my prayer, God, as we parse out that theology today, that, God, we would be the kind of men and women who would not be lifting up our lives to anything less than you. And, and that, Lord, you become the focal point of all that we say and do, and that your glory would matter more than anything. Lord, would you do that in us? Teach us from your word today as we start this new series on the questions that Jesus asked, and Lord, may these things encourage and challenge us, even inspire us for the days and weeks ahead. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I've already kind of let on, I just love the questions that Jesus asked when he was on this earth. I really do. You can read about it. If you go to the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find that there's almost 80 questions alone. That's like three per chapter that Jesus asked in the Gospel of Matthew alone. I've not counted yet in Mark, Luke, or John, but there's got to be over 100 questions that Jesus asked when he was on this earth. And they're questions that, that were all over the map. I mean, some of them were direct questions, some indirect, some rhetorical, some we get, some at face value we don't get. So, for instance, Jesus asked questions that were direct and to the point, like, whom are you seeking and why are you so afraid? And we're going to look at a couple of those questions in this series. And yet at other times, he asked questions that were rhetorical and, like, really easy to answer. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? If I was there, I'd have been like, yes. <laughs> Got that one right. I mean, yeah, that's a pretty rhetorical question. Of course, the, the life is more than food and body, more than clothes. But Jesus' point in that, as we're going to see as we look at that in the coming weeks, is, is to try to get us to think more than skin deep about this life and this material world. It's a profound question. And yet there's even other times where Jesus' questions were not very direct and they were not very easy to answer when it comes to what he was getting at. In other words, they were the kind of questions that were designed to catch our attention simply because they seemed to come out of nowhere and we really have no idea where Jesus was going with them. And this is precisely the question that we have before us today, the question that I want us to begin this series with. And so if you brought a Bible with you, I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. Gospel of Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 31. Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 31. If you didn't bring a Bible, we'll put the scripture up here on the screen. And uh, you can follow along as I read here. And notice the question that Jesus asks here as we begin this series. Verse 31. To what shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? Now, folks, if you were a follower of Jesus in the first century, and you were there when he first asked this question, what do you think he'd be getting at? I mean, what do you think? 
I've answered this for myself. If I was there in that very first setting 2,000 years ago when Jesus asked the question, to what shall I compare this generation, I would have just heard him talk about John the Baptist. That's the context of this question. He was talking about how John the Baptist was a powerful prophet come from God to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, into this world, and how some people had received John's message and others had not. That's the context of Jesus asking this question. And then Jesus says, so to what can I compare this generation? And I might respond with something like, well, I have no clue, Jesus. How would you compare this generation? And it's like he reads our minds if you respond like this at all, knowing that we really don't have any idea what he's driving at. And so he's going to go on to answer his own question. And in typical Jesus style, I love how he teaches, he's going to begin by giving us a metaphor. Jesus taught a lot in parables, short stories that have a point to them, word pictures so that we can start to understand what he's talking about. So look at verse 32 and how he goes, to be, goes on to begin to, uh, to explain the answer to his question. He says, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. And we say, okay, now we're starting to get somewhere children in the marketplace playing a common first century game. You see, back then, kids played in the marketplace very simple games that are not like maybe the games that we would play today. This was the time before we had bikes, scooters, rollerblades, Nintendo, Xbox, PlayStation, and Wii. This was before the days of kid-sized shopping carts at Walmart or kids' playstations that you might find in bashes. And though some of you won't remember these days, some of you might, there was a time when kids had to use only their imagination to play when their parents were out in the marketplace. I know it's a stretch for some of you, but that actually was a time that existed where we didn't have near the entertainment mediums that we have today. And that's what was going on back 2,000 years ago. And so one of the simple but imaginative games that they would play is that they would divide the kids, the kids would divide themselves into two groups, and the first group would begin by acting out a scene from everyday life, and once the other team figured out what, what that scene was, they would have to finish it. It was kind of a first century version of charades, but involving both teams in the play acting. One that begins and one that ends. One that starts the game and then the other one finishes the game. And so in Jesus' example here, the first team acts out what is most likely a wedding celebration. Flutes and dancing were common at weddings. But the other team either doesn't get it, or more likely they do get it, and they don't want to play along, just like kids might do. And so the first team then acts out a funeral dirge. They, they sing a dirge or a song of grief. And again, the other team either doesn't get it, or more likely they do get it, and they don't want to go there. This is Jesus' word picture. you got children playing a common first century game in the marketplace, but the game never really gets off the ground. That's how Jesus would compare this generation. And we say, okay, I think I'm starting to get it, but what are you saying, Jesus? What's the connection to us? And in trying to help us further understand this not-so-intuitive question, Jesus then goes on to give us the answer in fact. Again, he did that quite often, where he'd tell a parable, a story, a metaphor, and then he'd say, and here's what I'm driving at. And he does that. Look at verses 33 and 34. He says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. 
The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And now, and only now, have some parallels been drawn. Did you catch any of them? Likening John the Baptist and Jesus to this first group of children, the ones who called out in the open places and started the tunes in the marketplace, Jesus tells us that we, don't miss that folks, we, the multitudes, that's who he's speaking to. You can check it out in verse 24 of Luke 7. It's the multitudes that he's speaking to. We failed to dance and we failed to weep to the tunes of John and Jesus. In other words, don't miss this. When John came and called us to repent and turn to God and then modeled it by living a rather austere life of poverty and physical denial, we didn't like it and quite frankly would have rather stayed in our superficial, albeit happy and controlled, lives. But then when Jesus came to us and called us to a life of connection to the Father through a forgiving relationship with Him, but one that's going to cost us our very lives in submission to Him, we say, I'm not sure I like that either. In other words, that's a little bit more lively than John's scenario. At least I get to stay in the world and I don't have to eat locusts and honey in the desert. But this laying down your life thing is a bit drastic, don't you think, Jesus? John and Jesus both playing tunes from God, and Jesus' point is, is that that generation has failed to dance to either. That's his point. That's the answer to what kind of generation this was and what he was dealing with. And I don't know if you've noticed up to this point or not, folks, but I'm kind of suggesting in my use of the English language here that it wasn't just that generation that Jesus might say this to, but that if he was here today, he might have a very similar, if not completely synonymous, response. The times don't change, and human nature is always the same. And that when you look close, there are many, many folks, and I'm even going to suggest today many of us who tend to follow suit like the multitudes did back then. And so here's my main point this morning. Here is what I think we take home, what we get out of this passage once we start to understand what's going on here. And it's simply this, that we don't like how God comes to us. We don't like the presentation of John or the presentation of Jesus. And so as a result, we settle for much less and remain unsatisfied and separated from God as a result. That's Jesus' main point here. And I think it's very applicable to you and I even today. That we don't like how God presents himself to us. It doesn't quite fit neatly into our everyday world. And so we settle for much less. And we remain unsatisfied and anxious in our souls and even distant from God as a result. I mean, it's true. Think about it, folks. As I said just a minute ago, John the Baptist came into this world with a basic message of repentance. His message was this. Turn from your sin and face God because he has a message for you. That's what John said. And most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, respond today to that kind of message with something like this. Well, that's not very grace-filled. I mean, you're kind of like a legalist. What do you mean, turn and repent and face God? That doesn't sound like a very kind thing to say to me or to say to somebody else. In other words, we don't like how John presented God to us. And so then along comes Jesus, and he says, okay, try this on for size. You're massively separated from God. You're like lost sheep, blind people, runaway sons, and valuable coins that have disappeared. 
but I have come to bring you back to God. So take up your cross, follow me, lose your life for my sake, abandon and deny yourself, embrace me fully by radical faith and ruthless trust, and by losing your life in this way, you're going to find forgiveness for your guilty souls, and you're going to begin a life of faith in which, though it won't be easy, because I am known as the man of sorrows, you will nonetheless have periods of intense joy and purpose that will keep you going through the rough times, and whether blessings come your way in life or not, because there is no guarantee, don't worry, you're going to be storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven that will make your best day here pale in comparison to your worst day on the other side. That's what Jesus says to us. And again, many today say, well, that's not quite what I was thinking either. And yet some of us try it. That's why we're here this morning. We're church-going folks. We're Christians. We're those who have either been raised in a Christian home or we've come to Christ in our late teen or adult years. And so we've taken Jesus up on his offer. We've given our lives over to him, and we've begun a life of following him. And let's be honest, when those experiences of peace and joy, those moments that he promised of peace and joy, don't come in as often or like we, think we sh like we think they should, and when the blessings don't flow like we hoped they would, there's something in us that over time, and I hope you can own this with me this morning, there's something in us that over time begins to stop dancing. And as the flute continues to play and as the dirge continues on, like the children in the marketplace, we're not dancing anymore. And we're settling for spiritual mediocrity at best, and if we're honest, a life of hidden faithlessness at worst. In other words, we're not even playing the game anymore. And this is where I think many in the evangelical church are at today. I mean, we have just settled for mediocrity, and when it comes to the dance that God wants from me and from you, we're just not dancing anymore. And every cultural indicator, every big hitter in the evangelical realm, in the Western world, points this out. And my question for us today is, when are we going to realize it and maybe even own it for ourselves? John MacArthur Jr. calls this being a carnal Christian. Other people call it being a casual Christian. Some call it compromise. My friend Larry Crabb calls it good enough Christianity, where you feel just good enough about your Christian life because you come to church and go to Bible study and give a little change in the offering plate and maybe even have a quiet time in the morning, the daily bread. And then you go on your way as if everything revolves around you. It's casual Christianity. And it's very different than the sold-out, give-it-your-all faith that Christ demands. You see, in our heart of hearts, folks, we don't like how God comes to us. We don't like his terms of absolute surrender and wholehearted following, and so we settle for much less. And yet the byproduct of that is that we remain unsatisfied and distant from him as a result. And don't get me wrong, I think most of us are probably still saved. I mean, we're still part of the fold. We show up each Sunday, we attend Bible study, again, we have a devotional life, we serve at times, all good things. We're still kind of in the game. But when we're honest with ourselves, we realize that subtly over the years, we've stopped dancing. And we know that this is true 
because when we hear Jesus talk about streams of living water welling up in our souls, and then other biblical writers writing about things like a peace that passes understanding and joy unspeakable, and even other biblical writers talking about a perseverance and a tenacity in which nothing can knock you down in your faith, we go, well, that's not quite my life either. I mean, I don't think those around me are seeing and experiencing that joy unspeakable and that peace that passes understanding. And folks, one of the reasons I know this is so true, is let's have a time of self-confession right now, is because I'm with you at times. I mean, there are periods of time, sometimes even long periods, where I, your pastor, am just going through the motions. Over the last 30 years, there have been times where I've stopped dancing to the tune whether it's a wedding song of joy or a funeral dirge of somber weeping and lamenting, my heart just isn't in it anymore. In fact, if it were possible in today's culture as a pastor, there would be times where I could be sued for malpractice. It's true. I'm like a dentist who doesn't brush his teeth. I'm like a, I'm like a mortgage broker who doesn't pay his mortgage. I mean, you all get the picture. There's times where the most religious among us who seemingly have it all together on the outside just aren't there anymore inside. And there have been times, thankfully not right now in my spiritual life, but there have been plenty of times where I've gotten up to this pulpit and I'm just cold inside. My heart is not tender anymore to the things of God. And I relate to Jesus and the question he asks here, to what can I compare this generation? Well, let me tell you, Jamie, you're like a kid in the marketplace and I'm playing the tune and you're not dancing. And I'm playing the dirge, and you're not weeping anymore. Your heart and your life just isn't there. Folks, I get it. I get what it's like to be a child who isn't dancing to Jesus' tune. And so the issue that we must wrestle with, if you relate to this at all this morning, is why. Why do we do this? And how do we do this? And what's really going on in our souls when we do this? Have you ever thought about that? I give lots of thought to this. I have lots of thought to the machinations of my soul and why it is that that first fervor that C.S. Lewis wrote about seems to die down so quickly. Why it is, as the book of Revelation says, I can be so lukewarm when he wants me to be either hot or cold. We need to dig deep this morning, folks. Why do so many of us stop dancing to God's tune, to how he comes to us and presents himself to us, or maybe for some of us never picked up the dance in the first place? What's holding us back? What's blocking our way? And though there's so many reasons for our spiritual lethargy, I mean, everything from anger to disappointment to hurt to selfishness, I mean, lots of reasons that we do this. I want to spend the rest of our time here this morning by sharing with you just one, one key thing that I think many of us can admit that is going on in our more humble moments, one key thing that I think is really core to why we don't dance, one thing that Jesus shares with us right here, in his answer to his own question. And here it is. Here is one key reason that we don't want to dance anymore to God's tune, and that is that we are like children who place themselves at the center of the universe, and we fail to realize whose glory matters most. I'm telling you, if you don't get this right now, you will by the end of our time today, and I ask you to turn inside, dig deep, and ask yourself if this is you. We are like children who place themselves at the center of the universe and we fail to realize at the end of the day whose glory, i.e. God's, really matters most. 
And so looking back at Jesus' answer to his own difficult question, notice with me how he begins this whole explanation in verse 32. This is so critical. He says, first four words, they are like children. We're like children. And so before you read any further, pause and park in front of that phrase there. Jesus is likening you and I to kids. I think there's something there. He's saying, what are you guys like? You're like children. And you say, but we're adults. That's the point. You're like children in your spiritual lives. You know, I've not met a child yet. As wonderful and free and cute and relatively innocent as they all are, I haven't met a child yet who didn't struggle intensely with what I call the I am at the center of the world and all should revolve around me syndrome. Give me a head nod that you all get that. I mean, kids are amazing. I'm not down on kids. I love kids. Kim and I can't wait to be grandparents someday way in the future. But all of us know part of childhood is going from that point of being a helpless baby to a toddler to then a little guy or gal to adolescence and then eventually into adulthood, all the while growing in our natural understanding that one is not the center of the world and that the world does not revolve around oneself. I mean, that's just a natural part of going from a child to an adult. To be sure, babies don't get this at all. Their crying with every need reveals this. It's all about them and their needs, and naturally so. And most toddlers don't get this. It's me, me, me with sparse moments of, of joyful moments, of other-centeredness. And we even wonder where that comes from. And then as they become little guys and gals, on into adolescence, it's so cool to watch. They begin to realize that they are not the center. Valued and loved, yes, but not the center. And hopefully by adulthood, people begin to realize, at least in their head, if not in their hearts and their actions, that they're not the center of the universe. That there's more to it than just them. One thing that is core to all children is this tenaciously egocentric understanding of the world that gets shattered and blown apart as one gets older. And so what you need to know, folks, is that though on a human level, in light of others, we hope that most human beings eventually grow into adulthood and realize they are not the center of it all. But what Jesus is saying is that when it comes to God and our relationship with him, there are many, many, many people that fail to realize that we were made to glorify him and that we are made to revolve our lives around his glory, not the other way around. That we were made to please him, not him please us. Which is the way that many of us tend to approach God. But we need to realize that, that we are not the center of the spiritual world with somehow God existing to give us joy and please us. No, we were made to seek and focus on him and his glory surround our entire lives around it. And only when we do that... Do we begin slowly over time to find that sweet spot in which his joy becomes our joy? But as John Piper writes about, man, that's hard work. You've got to train your fallen soul to do that day in and day out. And it will take a long time, just as it takes a long time for a little toddler to eventually grow up and realize that it's not all about them. It's just that Jesus is saying, we got a bunch of adults walking around now that on a spiritual level never grew up. And they really think, we really think, that it's all about us and that it's not really all about him. 
Please see this, church. We were designed to live our lives with God at the center. His glory being the focus of our souls with our lives revolving around Him. Monday through Saturday, Him. You know, when you look closely at the life of Jesus, He both teaches us this and models this for us in everything, and I mean everything, that He said and did. In fact, check out these passages and see if you can pick up on what I'm talking about. I'm just going to take you to a few passages from the Gospel of John, which John does such a great job of showing us how Jesus' life revolved around the glory of the Father. Look at John chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, and then verse 30. It says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Then verse 30, I can do nothing on my own, Jesus says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So gosh, even if you don't read the Bible very often, it's like, do you get the sense of who revolves around who here? It's Jesus revolving around the Father. And him revolve around the Father's will. And then look at John 7, verse 18. Jesus says, again, he is speaking. He says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So it's Jesus again saying, hey, I'm not here for my own benefit. I'm here to seek the glory of God who from time, history, past has come up with a redemptive plan to bring people into relationship with himself. And it's his glory and goodness that I'm after. And then if you're still not convinced about the life of Jesus, look at John 8, verse 29. Again, Jesus is speaking. He says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Now get this. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So let me ask you, where do you think Jesus got his joy purpose and peace from <laughs> from the glory of the father and being in right relationship with the father 24 7 every single day that's what jesus modeled and taught us and so i simply got to ask you folks could it be that the reason that so many of us do not dance to his tune more readily is because inwardly and maybe even outwardly we live such egocentric lives in which the last thing on our mind Monday through Saturday is the glory and utter centrality of the one who made us, loved us, and redeemed us. Could that be what's going on? Could it be that we are still children, still infantile, in the way that we think about God and his goodness and his glory? You know, I mentioned earlier, I struggle with this. One, I, I see this all the time in my ministry. And again, I'm not like some, you know, spiritual watchdog that points it out every time I see it. You know, you're not about the glory of God. You know, I don't function like that with people. But all week long, i got to tell you how many times I see this in my ministry. I mean, probably out of 100 people that would come to me for wisdom on seeking God's will, it's only one out of 100 that eventually looks me in the eye and says, you need to know, Jamie, at the end of the day, I really don't care what happened as long as, it, as, long as God is glorified. I just don't hear that very often. I hear people want to know God's will so they can be happy and fulfilled and make money and, and so their relationships can go really smooth and so their kids can turn out really good and all this other stuff. And, and that's all good and fine. Don't get me wrong. It's just at the end of the day, that's all about who? You. That's all about you. But that's the way most of us seek our understanding of God's will. But we don't seek an understanding of God's will that begins with the premise of how can God be glorified in this? 
Because you see, if we did, we're not dummies. We know that we just might not get our agenda met, right? Because no longer is it about our agenda and our will. It's now about his agenda, his will, his glory, his goodness. But very few of us are enamored with that. Very few of us are really in love with God on that level that we really live for, seek, and revolve our lives around his glory. I've given you this illustration before, but I'm telling you, I have so very few good illustrations that this one is worth repeating. Uh, you'll see behind me there on the screen the uh, map of the mall, and it's that old red dot illustration. I, I, I did not come up with this illustration. It was come up with a very good friend of mine, Dr. Larry Crabb, and he uses it in his teachings, and it's just a wonderful illustration in helping you and I understand what our lives are revolving around when it comes to God. So when you go to a mall, uh, and you don't like being at the mall, so you're probably male, and uh, you're at the mall, I know that was very sexist. Anyways, you're at the mall, and uh, you don't like being there, or say you do like being there, and you want to find out quickly the story you're looking for, you go to the map. And when you go to the map, the very first thing that you look for is that red dot, because that red dot tells you you are here. I love it. I mean, for guys that are spatial like me, it's perfect. I don't like being at malls. I want to get out of there as quickly as I can. So I go to the map. I find that red dot. I am here. This is where I'm going. I'm out of here pretty soon. And that's the way I function. And even if you're going to stay there all day, you still can relate to the red dot. And the reason that the red dot is so important is because it clearly tells you where you are as well as, don't miss this, how far the store you are looking for is and where in proximity to that store you are. And so we all love that little red dot because it helps us get our bearings straight and where we need to go. Now, with this picture in mind, looking at that behind me on the screen, let me ask you, where are you when it comes to the placement of your life around the glory of God and Him at the center? In other words, where is your red dot today, Sunday, July 18th, 2010, when it comes to placing your life around his glory and his purposes. Because I think if many of us are honest with ourselves, we'd admit that on many days our red dot is right where it is on this map. It's right in the center of everything. And we've shoved God off into J.C. Pennyland. Or we've shoved God off into Sears land, right? And we don't mind living like that. Because we know that God is so good and so gracious that even though our lives are pretty egocentric and we're at the center, that if we need him, we can scream out to him in the mall, kind of like a parachute prayer, help God, I'm free falling, I need you. And because he's good and he's gracious, we know he's going to come running from JCPenney to where we are, right? And we know that when he comes running, he's going to say to us, well... Gosh, I was kind of hoping that you'd be where I was. I was kind of hoping that you'd be the center, I'd be the center of your life and your life would be revolving around me, but I'm here. How can I help you? And because he is so good and he's gracious, he tends to respond to us many times when we call out to him with parachute prayers. And yet the reality is, is that to live your life like that on a regular basis where you're the center, not God, where you only call on him when you need him, is exactly what Jesus was trying to get at here. He's playing the flute and you're not dancing. He's singing a dirge and you're not weeping. You're not really in the game. You're a casual Christian. You're full of compromise. You're carnal in nature. And again, let's not even get into salvation here today. But the reality is we can say at the very least, on a minimal level, that you're distant from God. Again, he's in Sears, you're at the center of the mall and that you're not very connected with him. And that's the tragedy 
of the way that many Christians live their lives today. And it's exactly the point that Jesus was trying to bring to us. And if you track with this at all this morning, folks, it's right at this point that you need what we call a Copernican revolution of the soul. And you say, what? A Copernican revolution of the soul. I want you to remember that phrase. It will be a wonderful friend to you. It's bouncing off of something that happened historically that's also going on right now in many of our hearts and minds. Look up here on the screen. About 2,000 years ago, uh, during the time of Jesus, just about at the end of the time of Jesus, a man by the name of Claudius Ptolemy, a Greek scholar living near Alexandria, Egypt, bounced off a prevailing view of Aristotle, and he declared that the earth was the center of the universe. And writing a book called The Mathematical Compilation, he set into motion a 1,400-year view that would take us all the way through the Middle Ages, that the earth is the center of the universe, that God made it that way, and that everything revolves around the earth. And he didn't just come up with it scientifically based on Aristotle's findings. He also baptized it within a Christian worldview and said, well, of course the earth is the center of everything. We're created just a little lower than the angels, that we're the pinnacle of all creation, that God loves us massively. And so he set into word of you a cosmology, physically and spiritually, that everything revolves around the earth. And so for the next millennium and a half, can you imagine? This is what all scholars, religious leaders, and people believed. But around the turn of the 16th century, a man by the name of Nicholas Copernicus started doing his own mathematical calculations and came to the pretty clear conclusion that no, the earth is not the center, but the sun is the center, and even more insulting that our galaxy is probably just one of many galaxies and certainly not the center of it all as well. This became known as the heliocentric view versus the old geocentric view. And though it's so commonplace for you and I today to think, well, duh, the earth revolves around the sun, what you need to remember is that for thousands of years before this, people were absolutely convinced of Ptolemy's view. It was deeply rooted in their minds and hearts that God made the earth the center of everything. And just so you know how powerful a change this really was. Listen to how one historical scholar from the University of California in Riverside talks about this and what he says about this Copernican revolution. He says, and I quote, it's hard to underestimate the importance of this work. It challenged the age-long views of the way the universe worked and the preponderance of the earth and by extension of human beings. The realization that we, our planet, and indeed our solar system, even our galaxy, are quite common in the heavens and reproduced by myriads of planetary systems provided a sobering, though unsettling, view of the universe. He says all the reassurances of the cosmology of the Middle Ages were gone, and a new view of the world, less secure and comfortable, came into being. <laughs> it just rocked everything to think and realize we, physically speaking, are not the center of it all. In fact, as many of you know, the leaders at that time, Copernicus and eventually Galileo, would pay a really big price, especially at the hands of the religious leaders of that day, for coming up with this view. A simple thing, really, when you think about it. We are not the center of the universe. The sun does not revolve around, or the earth does not revolve around the sun, but the, the uh, I'm sorry, the sun does not revolve around the earth, but the earth actually revolves around the sun. And this is why I say, folks, that when it comes to how many of us relate to God today, 
when it comes to what is the core of why so many of us don't dance and why we act like stubborn children instead. It simply belies that what we need more than anything else is a Copernican revolution of our soul. Or put more simply, we need to revolve our lives around the sun, S-O-N, rather than the sun, S-O-N, revolving his life around us. It's a choice that you have. Are you going to go with the current evangelical cultural climate that we have today? That based on Oprah and New York Times bestseller lists and Dr. Phil and all the other meisms that are about today are all about you and your happiness? Or are you going to trust God that when you focus on his glory, his goodness, his grace, that he says happiness will come eventually as a byproduct. Actually, it'll come when you least expect it. C.S. Lewis says, surprised by joy when you least expect it. But your life is tenaciously going to be abandoned and submitted to him as you revolve around his glory. There's lots of changes we're doing right now at our church, most of them structural, most of them programmatic. We're taking a look at all of our ministries, and we're making some changes, some of them subtle, some of them not so subtle. And I believe, or I wouldn't allow these to go on, that at the end of the day, they're all good changes that will benefit us at the end of the day. However, I'm under no illusion that just because you change a program or just because you inject some new life into a certain ministry, that therein lies the recipe for success. Let me tell you what the recipe of success is for any New Testament biblically functioning church. And that is that you have a congregation of people who are so sold out to Jesus, who so love each other and know how to forgive, who so are unified and moving on in one accord that the spirit, on the spiritual realm where nobody else sees, they're winning the battle and God is pleased and God is blessing. I'm telling you, that's what we are praying for in our church right now. That as we make programmatic changes, who cares at the end of the day about those things? What we are praying for is for each of you. That as we have 5,000 people that regularly attend this place, that each of us might have a Copernican revolution of our soul. And that we might start revolving our lives around the glory and purposes of God Monday through Saturday when nobody else sees. So that when we come together, there is power, there is purpose, there is peace. And all that we do is a congregation of followers of Jesus. So we had slated this morning to end our service by doing our monthly elders fund offering. We're going to do that next week. As I was putting the finishing touches on my message yesterday evening, I thought, I don't want to do an elders fund offering as we close our service today. I don't want to focus on anything but what we've been focusing on. So next week we'll take up that offering. I hope you come prepared for that. It ministers to those in need. But what we're going to do today is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song. But I'm going to pray for those of you who specifically want to be prayed for, that your lives would be more about his glory than your own glory. Now listen close. There are some of you who came in here today, and just be honest with yourselves, because this is a good thing to be honest with yourself about, in which you really came in today flying high spiritually, and your lives have been revolving around his glory. I think that's awesome. There are many Sundays where I'm in that sweet spot, and that's a good place to be. I'm not going to pray for you today. Maybe I'll pray for you later that God continues to keep you on that road. But today, I want to pray for those of you who have maybe heard a call this morning to revolve your life 
around his glory because it hasn't been about that. You've not been about his glory. You've been more about your own glory. We all get there at times. But if we're going to move on together as a church and have any power, any love, any purpose, any usability in the hands of God, then all of us together as a body of Christ need to be about his glory. And I want to get us on the same page before we leave here today. So if you have the courage, if you have the gumption, and you want your life to be about his glory, and you need prayer for that, I want you to stand right now. If you want to be prayed for, for your life to be about his glory, I want you to stand right now. If you don't stand, that's okay. It just means that you're either not interested in this or, hey, you're doing okay on your own. And that's okay too. I want you to bow with me right now. Let's pray. God, I can only hope and believe that as we have so many standing in this place, that it means that we're ready to dance to your tune. God, I get, I get tears in my eyes thinking that we could actually have a church in which your glory, your will, your goodness, your grace, your truth matters to us more than anything else. More than this world, more than our dreams, more than our shattered dreams, even more than some of the good second place things in our lives, like our family, our job, our vocation. God, I, I'd love to think that your glory could take preeminence in our lives. So Lord, as we have hundreds standing here this morning, my simple prayer for them is that God, you would bless them anew, touch them anew in their spirits, that as they make a resolve today to have a Copernican revolution of their souls, for their lives to revolve around you, not the other way around. That God, you would give them strength, that you would, Lord, give them wisdom and discernment, that, Lord, you give them protection against the ploys of the evil one and temptations that we all experience when it comes to taking a stand for you. Lord, I believe every person standing right now has a target on their back. They do. The kingdom of the evil one will not rest easy on this one. And yet, Lord, as they experience those temptations tomorrow, this afternoon, Tuesday, Wednesday, this week, God, focus them once again on you. Draw them back to you. As Michael Card sung about so many years ago, would you show yourself to be the hound of heaven hounding them each moment of each day? And Lord, as you hound us, draw us to yourself in love, truth, and grace. God, I pray that you'd use us as a church, God. There are many of us who feel like Scasta Bible is on the verge of an exciting new season of usability, of impact in this community. Lord, anything we do here like this has got to be a precursor for that. Prepare us for the days ahead. We love you, we thank you, we praise you in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.